So, in this period of time, it's a period of question and answers. I've got here in front of me, there's uh, pieces of paper. I've made the uh, pilgrimage to the chai shop and uh, read through them into the uh, difficult and easy category. <laughs> but actually, the questions are, are, are thoughtful and. Uh, I do believe of uh, general interest to all of us with the uh, questions sometimes in the response which is given you may have to regard it that if there is a really clear connection between your question and uh, my answer please regard it as a cosmic coincidence because sometimes I kind of wander off into a, another subject which is more interesting <laughs> forgive me if you like and don't if you wish I don't whatever <clears throat> in your exchange with Leela who kindly came to for the dialogue remember the other evening you spoke of freedom of liberation on another occasion you warned about using this noun. Is liberation a state or a movement or both? Very uh, valid question. Um, endeavor. When I use freedom and liberation, uh, they, they, these concepts are used very uh, interchangeably uh, uh, for, uh, for myself there. And it is not a state and the reason language for a moment uh, here a state is that which is formed together it might be called the nation state or the mental state or the state of things so when we're speaking of a state we're referring to a variety of conditions which come together and form a state and obviously a huge variety of different states and that includes states of mind that which can form together and come together and be held together also has within the dynamic uh, of it the, the actuality of change and adaption and sometimes collapse and disintegration etc so liberation and freedom cannot be a state it cannot be a state of mind um, the question uh, uh, there asks is it a movement or both there goes the delicacy it also is not a movement if it was a movement it would have to be coming from somewhere and going somewhere and that, move, that uh, movement would be affected by the circumstances. So when we're speaking of liberation and speaking of, uh, of uh, freedom, it doesn't fall into our usual categories of a movement or activity, because that's always in the field of time, and it doesn't fall as well into being a state because a state comes together 
exists for a period of time, changes, dissolves, etc. Nevertheless, as human beings, we have the remarkable capacity to witness states of mind and we can witness movement. We can know about the movement of life, the evolution of life, which is a movement, but we can see the movement of thought, the movement of the hand scratching our head, the movement of the voice coming out through the being and coming outward. So we have this capacity in life to witness movement, to witness states of uh, mind, not regard freedom in the movement, nor regard freedom uh, in the state of uh, mind, for the reasons I just spoke. And that capacity to witness has the ability to accommodate movement and states of mind, and that capacity to witness that, the witnessing of that, is a key to understanding what freedom is. And that freedom allows, this is the important thing, allows states to arise of mind and heart and body and thought. It allows that to arise. It allows the free movement of life, the freedom of the heart, mind, body, speech to express itself. And all of that is expressing itself in that which essentially is inconceivable and inexpressible. That one is not in contrast nor in conflict with the other. Freedom is revealing itself in essentially the good, the bad and the ugly. There is no limits to its manifestations. And as human beings, we can know this, and because it's not a state, it is not destructible. Because it's not a movement, it's not in time, called past, present and future. And we can have a remarkable interest and deep interest in this, because, out, because in the dissolution of the contractions, heart, mind, body, speech, and much more, there is a natural, organic movement which takes place out of the human being, which is called love. That's the outcome. Which is called wisdom. Which is called realizations. Which is called spontaneous insights which is called empathy. When the contractions of states of mind, identification with time, becoming, all of that has faded, something deep and profound emerges out of the human being. And there is no end to those confirmations of liberation. When one harms another sentient being, humans, animals, plants, 
Um, if there is no I, no self, in quotation marks, is there anyone to take responsibility? If yes, who is that? It's a good question. Not an easy one to answer. <laughs> We have spoken over the days here um, of this, the emergence of the I and the emergence of the my there. It's been said regularly enough the value and the importance of mindfulness, observation, being present, meditation, expansive awareness and much much more those expressions of observation in a range and variety of them will naturally reveal that which is harmful and that which is healthy it's not a matter oh I am being helpful <coughs> I am <coughs> I am being harmful because we are conscious human beings and it's a profoundly beautiful thing to be a conscious human being when asked is, is it I who am being ethical or harmful in these teachings here the mindfulness or the consciousness reveals. I may say in every day, oh, I am careful about my actions, I don't want to hurt anybody. But what we're really referring to is the I as the shorthand language for being a conscious human being, carefully looking at life and considering the actions of body, speech and mind. What we're doing is being more conscious to see more clearly, in order to see more clearly, including what is it that I say or do or feel or think which is healthy and skillful, what is it that I say, feel, think or do which is hurtful or harmful. And the conscious human being being conscious of life will allow that consciousness to see that more clearly and then out of that comes our practices comes the uh, explorations uh, uh, which are so uh, important for the welfare and as the good person says there for animals people plants uh, the nature and of course ourselves as well it isn't easy in that respect because in the relationship to the vitality of day to day life times we do bring hurt and pain we walk on the grass and we tread on the, the creatures the uh, plant life we really depend upon uh, there uh, some of our activities from flying to travel to the use of resources and plastic r r does have its impact but 
we're not doing it habitually. We're not doing it robotically. We're really questioning. We want to be conscious of the way that we use resources. And I just spoke uh, today with one person noticing the kind of chemicals which are used in the toilet uh, here for the cleaning. And the person very kindly offered uh, to, during the afternoon um, of the, before the second retreat starts, to go to the market and to see what the alternatives are. Organic, neem oil, such a precious commodity uh, here in India, there. So she's conscious of something. We've spoken about it together. I asked her to find out what the alternatives are available in the village, what the cost is per uh, litre and where to go. And then when that's done, we will make that happen here. And I will go and see the abbot and say, look, there is an alternative to using the chemicals. That's what it is to be conscious. <laughs> you met many great masters. Yes, and many not so great as well, but anyway. <laughs> what is the characteristics of someone who is enlightened, fully uh, awake? What's the end game for the spiritual path? <laughs> I love it. How do we know if someone is enlightened? <laughs> um, a little bit here. There's a language Let's, for a moment. The word enlightenment is not used by, by the Buddha and is not found in 10,000 discourses for a start. So what happened was um, a couple of centuries ago, when um, initially uh, in Europe, um, the belief in God as the ruler who dispensed uh, judgment upon uh, uh, people, there was uh, the change, of course, which took place from a religious blue view of God governing the world and determining. Uh, events to one of uh, science and rational thought and its application there. And it got called the Age of Enlightenment. And, we are, and the West is living in the Age of Enlightenment. Amazing. Anyway, I bite my lip on that point. And, um, and then the wonderful translators, very quickly here, Pali, Sanskrit, Chinese and Tibetan, the four primary uh, Buddhist uh, langu uh, languages, um, used the word enlightenment because that was the word. But the word actually is Bodhi. And it, it does mean waking up. And the activity of that waking uh, up went that the shift which took place with regard to the teachings is one in which it was not necessary, this was radical, it was not necessary to have the big experience. 
It was not. So sometimes in spiritual practices, it is a view towards having a very big, literally mind-blowing experience. Uh, there, then once having had this mind-blowing experience, one was liberated, one was quote unquote enlightened, and then one got on with one's life as best one could. And the shift away was to open it out much more, that means the Dharma opening it out here, in which for some there can be that singular event which is transformative forevermore. Not to say it doesn't happen, it does happen. I've had the privilege of listening um, uh, to accounts of this for the past 50 years. But also it is acknowledged as well that there may not be any major experience but there is a gradual expanding and waking up process taking place in which in that waking up process liberation really is obvious. And it's obvious in the countless numbers of manifestations of it. And therefore the dramatic, called the sudden, much discussion past 2,000 years on this, and the gradual, both, I would say, are truly worthy of respect. Some might say gradual waking up, gradual emergence, gradually the analogy of the lotus moving through the pond to flower. And for some, there's a real sudden dramatic shift there. It is not obvious with uh, the Buddha and uh, the night of awakening whether one could either call it gradual or sudden. It's just uh, that some really profound insights came of human beings deeply concerned with suffering, deeply concerned with causes and conditions, the resolution of it and the ways to uh, resolve it. And out of those insights, 2,600 years later, there's a group of us sitting and still exploring those same insights. It's impressive, isn't it? Well, I think so anyway. (laughs) How do we really know that there is the possibility to end suffering rather than just believe it? Actually, it's fairly simple, really. In the time of your uh, reflections uh, here, in your meditations, you may have remembered perhaps a time uh, in your life which was uh, painful and difficult, troublesome, for all the ways that it could be. And you've looked at that painful, distressing period, you've come to an understanding about it, you haven't denied it, you haven't avoided it, you didn't repress it or suppress it, you looked at it, and you've realised that some change, perhaps a change of attitude, or a change of perception, or view, or way of relating to it, really was important. Perhaps another or others helped you, or meditations, or 
whatever was the resource for you. And you know it is over. You knew that you suffered over it. You knew, you knew it was really distressing for you. You've reflected, you've meditated, you've shared, you've opened your heart to another, others are about it. And you know the suffering's over, and you know it because you can look back over that event that could be recent or decades ago from your very early childhood, if not uh, before, and you can look back over it and say, well, the suffering over this has now stopped. It just doesn't arise anymore. I can look back as it was, and I'm no longer any suffering over. It's not a belief. You know it. If we can know it over a specific period in our life of some really tough, difficult issues which faced us, and now they're finished and you can look back over it, why not over any level of suffering? If one can see it with one, we can, one can see it with all. Because it's the same sort of situations of causes and conditions which contribute. And therefore the teachings of the complete resolution of human suffering is our potential. Sometimes of course with the body and issues with the body of course that may have to flow on uh, there but there doesn't have to be suffering over. And in the absence of that, when the Buddha was asked, those who know the end of suffering, or who very rarely experience it, mm. very rarely experience, what do, the, do those people have in common? And he says, those who have realised the end of suffering, or nearly all of uh, suffering, all have one share, one deep thing in common and that is empathy for others. Feel a deep empathy for others. And that empathy is not, you know, quite often, sometimes, you and I might have a conversation with somebody, and that person says to you, gosh, I'm really having a hard time, I'm really, it's really going through this real big difficulty in my life right now. Sometimes, we might say to the person, oh, I know how you feel, I also had to go through this, and I went through this, and we then say, or we might feel, this is empathy. It's not empathy. It's got nothing to do with it. It's just comparing oneself with another. It might be comforting for the other person. The other person might be thinking, frankly, I've got my own story to deal with. Please don't get into your story or, or, or whatever. Empathy is that deep element inside which can relate to the other with the wisdom and the insight and the sharing that can go with it. I don't have to have had the experience of the other. And quite regularly, I'm sure the same is for you. My goodness, thank God for that. Those of us who are in service to others, 
some of the things that we have to listen to, even on this retreat. Golly, if we needed this, oh, we can't really understand another unless we've gone through the same suffering. In these teachings, we can really understand the other if we haven't gone through it. Where there's enough space for our old history to be out of the way, and we can really connect. And sometimes our experience, which is similar, genuinely can be insightful and supportive. But empathy doesn't require that. I appreciate the very good uh, questions that you're all asking. Witnessing the feelings and not identifying with them creates a space around them. When the feelings are regarded as negative, this helps not to react uh, or contract around them. But when there is a feeling of love and compassion and kindness, this non-identification and space around it may also lead to detachment from them and not fully experiencing them. Isn't this a dilemma? In the way that the person's uh, described in that language, um, it would be. But it's not the intentionality. So what I uh, mean by that, in the negative or the reactive, there is something going on in here, inside of us, and some blame, fault-finding, hostility, agitation starts to move inside of us and it focuses on something. It, we, we kind of contract around it. And that may be towards ourself uh, as well. And there is some enough identification and the identification believes in the reactive view that I have. The identification believes in the reactive view that I have and believes the other person or situation is making me reactive. They're causing it, they're bringing it. That's why I'm so reactive because what she said, what he did, what they are doing or, or whatever and then the anger uh, comes. And there's a lot of self and other <coughs> um, in that situation. Love is a different ball game. Love is not the opposite of negativity. Love is not the opposite of hatred. There's no relationship. The opposite of hatred, there's not a word in English, but we could call it intense liking. Intense reaction. The opposite would be intense, intense wanting, intense aversion, and intense pull towards there. Love is not in this duality. There's no duality of love and hate. It doesn't exist. The love is the confirmation of expansion. It is the confirmation of the freedom of the movement. And it is a challenge for us to 
explore the uh, contraction, as the person said, the identification uh, uh, with it. And in that, there's this very famous verse in the Dharmapada, lovely uh, text of the Buddha, the fifth verse, and it says, blame, often translated as hatred, but it has a more subtle meaning, blame does not cease with blame, blame ceases with non-blame. And sometimes it gets translated, uh, uh, sometimes in, in the West, I've seen it a few times, where it says, the text might say, blame does not cease with blame, keep blaming person, it won't stop that way. Blame ceases with love. The Buddha is not so ambitious for human beings. <coughs> what I mean by that, <coughs> we do not have to put pressure on ourselves to be loving all the time because it ain't possible. There is no human being that I've met, and I've lived long enough to have met a few, who I can put hand on heart and say is loving all the time. <coughs> Never met one. And I've been blessed to meet some wonderful beings. So, sometimes, and as we touched on with the inquiry yesterday, it's not that I should replace blame with love. Just dissolve the blame. And see... In that dissolution, in which there is no withdrawal, what way can I handle a situation without dumping blame on the other? That's the question. So it is not for us a detachment. Just take the, make the personal comment here. Um, I, uh, uh, am, so my friends tell me, a uh, social critic. I write a blog and probably 600 uh, more items in the blog over this past 12 or 13 years. Sometimes I speak up about something in the hall with some conviction and uh, hopefully persuasion and similarly with the blog. And not so often, but often enough, people either in the listening or in the, in the writing, the critique, will email me or say to me, oh, Christopher, when you were speaking about that political issue, that global issue, whatever, you really sounded angry. Or when I... Uh, uh, writing I read what you what you wrote about Brexit the current nightmare and gosh you really were attacking the politicians uh, etc and I have to check in with myself and ask myself is it anger is it attacking 
or is it writing or speaking with some conviction, with passion? And I have to say, I, I'm regularly running the edge on this. And sometimes people in the Dharma hall, either sometimes on retreat or in the public environment, in the public evening talk or whatever, have got up and stormed out of the hall over something that I've, I've said, which is their right and their freedom to get up and walk out. There. And then I'm asked afterwards by my lovely Sangha friends, he said, how do, you, how do you feel about that? You know, they got up, person got up and walked out, and sometimes they slam the door to make sure that they do know how they they're angry or they're upset or they're protesting or whatever and my response was there are some of the things that I say if I was sitting in the hall I would get up and walk out so everybody including myself reserves the right to enough and out we go for freedom to say no to what we listen to and sometimes think, good, well done others wanted to do it but they were too nice <laughs> oh dear, life so, two or three more, few more questions here there's quite a few here, I must say Can you talk about karma? Oh, oh, happily. Is it possible to make unripened karma ripen? Or eradicate ripened karma by repeatedly experiencing it? Oh, you'll be lucky. Um, is, is everything in, in experience caused by karma? And the things happening before these experiences or events, just conditions. Not quite clear the second part, but I can respond in a, in a, a general way. Um, in the East, for those of you who have spent quite some time in the uh, East, the, the word karma is used very, very uh, frequently. It has a generalized use which is not faithful to its actual meaning. So, in its generalized use, it becomes oh, everything that happens to us or to others, oh, it's their karma. This is, this is it. If that was the case, there would be no point in the Buddha speaking of the end of suffering as the cessation of karma. So, the generalized oh, it's your karma, your karma, your karma um, is not appropriate, not wise, not skillful and fundamentally not true. Um, and sometimes there are terrible, prejudiced, jaundiced statements um, with regard to the use of karma and one which stands out in my uh, mind among many living in the East in the Buddhist tradition 
was, you may recall, I think it was 2003 or four, that awful tsunami in which maybe a quarter of a million people died. <coughs> and one senior, well-known Buddhist teacher said, in Bodhgaya, in a public talk, that the fishermen living close to the sea, obviously, that they died because of their bad karma as fishermen. I found that absolutely repugnant, repulsive. And I said so in the hall. And one of the devotees of this uh, Asian, not a Western teacher in this case, an Asian teacher, was quite upset with me and came to speak to me after the talk and and the same teacher said the fishermen will go to hell for 500 lifetimes something like that and the uh, devotee said to me how do you know he said that perhaps he didn't say it at all because you weren't there and I said just pick up that in front of me it was a transcription of the text made by a friend of mine who does retreats with me and his job was to transcribe it he was shocked by it he handed it to me he asked me to say something it was there on the paper from the transcription this is a (coughs) ugly inappropriate and frankly unethical use so karma has a meaning it's not to be used to create horrible judgments on people and its meaning is the unsatisfactory influence it's an action, karma means action so it's the unsatisfactory influence from the past over the present it's not to be used in any way because it's obscene in a kind of generalised way oh what happened to this group of people or that group of people that's their karma this is vulgar language it's for a human being to explore and to recognise what are the unsatisfactory influences of the past on the present Sometimes that's the greed, the blame, the negativity and the fear. But sometimes it's the idea of doing good. And we know that we can very easily, humanly, identify with doing good for others, for ourselves, etc. But that doing good, personally, socially, spiritually, politically the identification uh, with it can get obsessive the outcome of that is we're working so hard doing good and the outcome of that is stress exhaustion and burnout Buddhist language the hell realm people who are engaged in quote unquote doing good really need to be mindful and vigilant 
is the response to situations coming from clarity or wisdom or is it some kind of habitual compelling need unexamined which eventually will probably tire me and stress me out and lots of wonderful people quote unquote doing good just can't do it anymore they're exhausted, they're tired, it's too much, they're overwhelmed, uh, and give up. So our relationship is the exhaustion of karma in order to free up the being to express wisdom and compassion and not regard it as some kind of must or oppressive force from the past on the present. It's just too exhausted. So the ending of karma is another way of liberation. And in some situations, you've worked on yourself very diligently. You have changed something. You know, an easy example would be uh, smoking. You've seen the consequences, both to health, to environment, and. Um, and much, much more, and you have stopped. And that stopping of that can then stop that karma from ripening, no guarantee, stop that karma from ripening in the future as cancer. So the resolution of suffering is a means to free the being up and stop the ripening of things in the future. We as human beings, we pay a rather heavy price for not ending karma. And so there can be plenty of actions which are coming from clarity and wisdom, kindness and empathy, Engagement uh, with life, uh, with, our, with our being, nothing to do with karma. It's completely unproblematic. Not tied up with I am doing good. Worth inquiring into. Right, a couple more. How am I doing before I've got some one to ones? Alright, a few more, few more minutes. Apologies, I won't be able to answer all your questions. If I do, you'll, you'll miss your chai. You've mentioned the shadow. It's true, a few times. Is this union psychology integrating all parts of ourselves or something else can you elaborate how do you explore it um, in a small way kind of relates language wise to the last question and my uh, reading of uh, Carl Jung who I loved a bit something of a, a Buddha of the West I would say Sometimes we know that the past, the metaphor, 
is acting as a shadow over the present and we can't see very clearly because our old mindset, our old memories, our old feelings and associations just kind of land over it. And this I'm calling the shadow. I'm calling it karma. I'm calling it conditioning. I'm calling it habits. I'm calling it addiction. I'm calling it unresolved stuff. And all of that can easily land in the, in the present. For a human being to know the self is to know those movements from the old which are unsatisfactory. Plenty of movements from the old and are not unsatisfactory. Lots of things which are insightful, supportive and beneficial from the past, people in the past, which we're really grateful for and appreciative for. But there are some areas we know these need attention because they make our life difficult or because we've got an idea about myself how I should be I should be a good person I should be this, I should be that it's all shadows all karma, all con conditioning and the more engagement with the day to day life and the more intimacy with the fullness of things it will stand out easily to us and our friends what we need to look at it's not, karma's not working all the time it's not possible, nothing is working all the time so there are plenty of situations where we're not under the shadow, the past but when we are there's your practice well, there's your practice our good psychotherapists and our psychologists and our mind-body workers and our uh, uh, psychotherapists actually a lot of it in this language here is finding skillful ways to exhaust a person's karma oh, why not? Right, a couple more questions and then all done, done. Um, a little bit, some of them I've, um, if I may say, have addressed a little bit. Uh, Um, <coughs> how to <coughs> how to move from an intellectual understanding in the Dharma to realizing in a way the uh, <coughs> journey is a little bit for some head to heart um, just may not respond precisely to a good question uh, there sometimes in our circles the, uh, the intellectuals get given a hard time oh there's that kind of uh, judgmentalism that goes and oh they, whoever they are the scholars especially get stuck in, oh they're stuck in their heads 
This is a kind of spiritual racism, really, uh, giving the uh, those the intellectuals and the academics a hard time. Plenty of those, the scholars in the universities and outside. Wow, some of us are incredibly grateful and appreciative. But the some of these heartfelt meditators there, which is not very heartfelt, will say, oh, they're out of touch with their feelings. In the 1990s, if one wrote a book with the word heart in it, it was guaranteed a bestseller. So the, these people in their heads are out of touch with their feelings, etc. Poor people, etc. Dharma's nothing to do with Dharma, these kind of viewpoints. The teachings encourage the development of the mind. It says knowledge, jnana, the word, uh, knowledge is incredibly important. Can we find a knowledge which is really supportive and beneficial? It doesn't uh, have to be a problem. It is fine, uh, particularly in these kind of traditions, in which there are some extraordinarily bright, intelligent, thoughtful intellectuals who are making an immense contribution to our practice. And there's one who, um, when I have the opportunity, go to Motilal Banasi Das. It's the great bookshop of Varanasi. Been around for well over a hundred years. Yeah, wear a face mask if you go. At least when I was there. Um, because there, you, you need ladders to climb up. It's full of dust there. But my goodness me, there are some marvellous books in there. Marvellous books. And the academics, they've sat down, they've gone through 10,000 discourses there and analysed the languages, the words, the experience, the lifestyle, the culture, the music, much, much more. The dance, much, much more that there and the way of life and the Brahmins and the caste system people like me it's incredibly helpful yeah. so they're not the kind of people who are going to burst into tears you know, because they missed the train you know whatever they're, they've developed their mind bless them for it we are blessed by it and other people in the Dharma world are very heartful very feeling that's a beautiful word others are intuitive there's diversity let's respect and appreciate the diverse diversity there and for some you read lots of books and you think well how do I make that transition from a lot of knowledge which I feel needs to drop a bit deeper inside more retreats less books Simple. <laughs> 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 my, my teacher Ajahn Damodaro, pretty hardcore Vipassana uh, teacher, he uh, 
he had no time for books. He was say books in Thai language. Books the death of practice. <laughs> whoa, whoa. So in the nineteen eighties he and nineties he kindly came to Budkaya, was giving the retreat in the Thai monastery. And he this is the nineteen nineties and he found out that I had written at that time four or five books. He was not pleased. <laughs> <laughs> what has his senior Western student has done giving people books to read? What point is there in that? Practice, practice, patipa, patipa, patipa. Practice is the important. Okay. I'm still writing books, by the way. All right. Yeah. So, literature can really be very, very helpful. The YouTube can be very, very helpful. But uh, uh, the practices make that kind of journey to, um, as uh, Jung would say, to the whole human being. The fullness of the human, human being and addressing and applying the strengths that we have. All right, this is the very last question. <laughs> Sometimes I like to pronounce some of these words in the, 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 the style of some of the masters. Buddha nature, Rigpa, emptiness, original mind, Satori, primordial consciousness. In different traditions, the same or different? What <laughs> a question. Um, to repeat, every question which is asked and every response which is offered is a sharing of one human being with the other, others. There's no absolute truth. It is a view of that's all it's a view of and recognising it is a view of actually protects the truth it's a view so as the person writes there <coughs> in the east and in the west there genuinely are a wide variety of Concepts which are used. Come back to the uh, the master, the Buddha. I went through the texts, and some of the words you will know rather, may know rather well. Nirvana, reality, infinite, truth, uh, suchness, emptiness. Um, the immeasurable, etc. The vast. So, I came across in the text more than a hundred different words to which make reference to something ultimate beyond the smallness of mind and body. Oh, he's used over a hundred different words, 
And the skillfulness of this, in my view, the skillfulness of this is sometimes for us in the exploration a word or some words kind of resonate, they're easy to understand. One gets a sense for it, a sense of the immensity of things. The word probably I've used most often here is freedom. Uh, another person may resonate very well with the expanse of things. So these particular words, which are uh, uh, referred to here, all of them can be used in a kind of ultimate, uh, uh, ultimate way. Satori and rigpa and uh, emptiness and, and much, much more. Very simply, uh, and sometimes no word at all, very simply, in the world of heart, mind, body and the world that we uh, live in, is, it is the confirmation it is the confirmation of that which is much greater than itself the everyday world of that which we see, hear, smell, taste and touch feel and think in terms of mind state all of that is not a problem which gets in the way of some great truth it is not in any way an obstruction to great awakening or great liberation all that we see, hear smell, taste and touch is the confirmation of it how cool is that let's have a quiet minute shall we May all beings inquire deeply into life. May all beings appreciate our potential for infinite explorations. May all beings know an immeasurable love and an immeasurable freedom. Thank you, uh, everyone. The uh, time is five minutes to uh, five at this time, and uh, some uh, one-to-ones for the sitting walking time, and as per usual, 5.30 with the uh, hot drink.
Thank you.